Thank you for being back tonight. We appreciate so much your presence. This is the first time that we've been together on Sunday night since, I guess, mid-March. And so it's quite different. And we're grateful that we're now able to be together. I know that Jared and I, we got, we got used to being together every Sunday night. And we, we always enjoyed being together and discussing Scripture together. And we are grateful that we no longer have to look at empty pews. And uh, let me tell you, it's different when you're here by yourself. It's just, there's just no way to really describe it. But we are glad that you're here tonight. We had a great number here this morning. And we hope and pray that we will continue to build upon that. We invite you tonight to look with us at 1 Corinthians 15. We are continuing on in our study of the selected scriptures that we're memorizing over the course of the year. And tonight we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, the passage that was read a moment ago. I hope that while we've been out that you've continued to memorize these verses. If you haven't been keeping up, you've got time to go back and catch up. And I want to encourage you tonight, I'm not sure exactly how many verses that we have cataloged for memorization this year, but uh, they're probably, I don't know, 60 or so. But we would encourage you to memorize these verses. I think it'll help you. It will certainly help you in your discussion with other people about the, about the church and about religious matters. Tonight we look at 1 Corinthians 15. And in verse 58, there is a call to Christian steadfastness. And Paul here is saying to people of all ages that we are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And as Paul said, for as much as you know that your labor is not vain in the Lord. There are certain passages of Scripture, there are certain chapters in Scripture that if you were to mention these chapters, a word would come to mind. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, typically we think about that chapter pointing to the many characteristics of love. Hebrews chapter 11, the first word that comes to mind is faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and following, the word that comes to mind is hope. Because really, Paul in this great chapter is trying to inspire all of us to live a life grounded in hope. Our hope is rooted in the resurrection. And ultimately, we have hope because Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes his case for the resurrection. So what I want us to do tonight, in order to really appreciate verse 58, you've got to look somewhat at the context of this chapter. And so first what I want to do is talk a little bit about Paul as he discusses preaching or proclaiming the resurrection. Now you and I know that the resurrection, it is fundamental to everything related to Christ, isn't it? And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul begins by talking about how he preached the gospel of Christ. Not only does he talk about preaching the gospel of Christ and the great blessings that ensue from that, but he points out this gospel message is a powerful message. So listen to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also, he said, you're saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I want to just talk a minute or two about, I want to talk a minute or two about preaching the gospel. Paul here says that the gospel has certain fundamental facts associated with it, doesn't it? Well, what are those facts? Here it is, verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. And that He rose again the third day. That is fundamental to everything regarding the Christian system, isn't it? Not only does he underscore this great truth. But he points out that the gospel is a powerful message. It is focused upon Christ, isn't it? Listen again to what he said. I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you're saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Wherever Paul went, the one that he lifted high before other people was whom? It was Jesus, wasn't it? You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and Him crucified. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul would say, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves as your servants for His sake. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he would talk about the preaching of the cross. Paul sought to the best of his ability to lift high Christ and Him crucified, didn't he? He understood the power of the gospel. Now, in preaching the gospel, you've got to understand something about the power of the gospel. And really what Paul says here is, number one, the gospel has the power to save us, doesn't it? Not only does it have the power to save us, but it can keep us saved. And that's a beautiful thought. Listen to him again in verse, look again at verse 2. He said, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. When people respond to the gospel of Christ in faith, they enjoy salvation, don't they? They enjoy the forgiveness of sins. Go back to Pentecost Day, and you see all those people that responded in faith to the gospel that was preached by Peter and the other apostles. Luke said they were convicted, they were pricked in their heart. And they cried out and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them to repent, to be baptized, that they would enjoy the remission, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 41 says some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel. And then in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The gospel has the power to save us. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. If we don't preach the gospel, then we nullify the power of it, don't we? But then the gospel has the ability or the power to keep us saved. Listen again to what Paul said. He said, I preach to you that which I also received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if... You hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
So the gospel has the ability to keep us intact spiritually, doesn't it? You know, one of the sad, really one of the sad realities in life is that down through the years, there have been a number of people that have obeyed the gospel. They have started out strong in the faith. But then for whatever reason, maybe it's the world, maybe it's tribulation, persecution, whatever, they fall away. And Paul here is saying, look, if we stand fast in the gospel of Christ, then all of the promises that we read about in Scripture, we can enjoy those promises. Promises that are given to us now and then that which is beyond this life. So there is emphasis on the proclamation of the resurrection. And I would encourage you to go back and look at Acts chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And as you look at the chapters that unfold in the book of Acts, it is amazing how much emphasis is given to the resurrection. And there's a reason for that. Again, because it is fundamental to the Christian religion. So first we think about the proclamation or preaching of the resurrection. But then secondly, what about the proof of the resurrection? Can we really be certain about the resurrected Christ? You know what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? There is bona fide proof. Well, how so, Paul? Number one, he identifies the eyewitnesses. We talk about eyewitness testimony. In a court of law, there is something to be said for eyewitness testimony, isn't there? There have been people that have been convicted of crimes they have committed because of eyewitness testimony. Others have been exonerated, again, because of eyewitness testimony. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is going to talk about the number of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. So listen to him in verse 5. He said, He was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. He said, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul here, giving us some eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Now you remember back in Acts chapter 1. Luke, in his narration of the events that began to unfold following the resurrection, said in Acts chapter 1 and about verse 3 that Jesus showed Himself alive by many infallible, some translations say, by many unmistakable proofs being seen by them over the space of 40 days. Over the course of 40 days, 
You had people that saw Jesus in the flesh, didn't they? Not only did they see him, they touched him. Thomas, you remember, had the opportunity to examine the print of the nails in the hands of Jesus. He could examine the side of Jesus. And his response was, my Lord and my God. I mean, we're talking about people that had the opportunity to see Jesus. They touched him. They ate with him. And so Luke in Acts chapter 1 is saying, look, for, the, for a period of 40 days, the Lord Jesus was seen by many eyewitnesses. But then what about the empty tomb? I mean, doesn't that say something? Now you go back and you look at the gospel narratives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And every account is the same, isn't it? In the sense that the tomb was empty. Now somebody says, well, maybe the enemy stole the body of Jesus, okay? Were there people that wanted to stop those who were following Jesus? They wanted to put an end to this this whole idea of Jesus? Yes, there were. All right, let's just say that they stole the body. Well, if they stole the body, why not produce it? And then you have stopped Christianity in its tracks, right? And then there are those that would say, well, maybe the apostles took his body. Well, in, Acts, in the book of Acts, I read about the apostles who were beaten, James, for example, lost his life by the sword as a result of the evil work of Herod. Do you really think these men would have died for something that really wasn't true? I don't believe that. We're talking about people that had conviction. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 4, for example, when Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin council and they were commanded not to preach or teach in the name of Christ, Their response was, we can't but speak the things we've seen and heard. And they said that in the midst of persecution, didn't they? Chapter 5, again, persecution. But what did the apostles do? They continued proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, both publicly and privately. You remember what the writers said about the empty tomb? To those who arrived at the tomb, why do you seek the living among the dead? With regard to Christ, He's not here. He's risen. They examined that empty tomb, didn't they? So the Apostle Paul here talks about the certainty of the resurrection. Now, there are some consequences to the resurrection. And you say, well, how so? Well, in verse 12 and following down to about verse 18, what Paul is going to say is, if the resurrection, if the resurrection is not true, then Christianity, as we know it, it is profitless. Listen to him. If Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain. And he said, your faith is vain also. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, 
because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, He said, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Now let me just pause there for a minute. Paul's saying, look, if this whole idea of the resurrection of Jesus, if this is a fallacy, if there's no truth to it, then everything that we're doing in the name of Christ, it's profitless. Not only is it profitless, it is pointless. Look at the continuation. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ had perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So, if we have faith in Christ, and we put all of our hopes in Him, but He hasn't been raised from the dead, then as Paul said, look, our preaching, it's pointless. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then sin, it is still sovereign in our lives, isn't it? If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith that we hold dear, Paul said it's futile. The bottom line is, we're talking about an empty religion, aren't we? Now you remember Paul in writing to the saints in Rome, said in Romans chapter 1 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness on the basis of what? The resurrection from the dead. Everything that we believe about the Christ, all of our hopes, all of our aspirations in Christ, stand or fall on the basis of the resurrection. Either it's true or it is not. Now you think about what Peter said over in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter said that those of us who belong to the body of Christ today, those of us who are of like precious faith, he said we have a living hope. That living hope is based upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He said on that basis we have an inheritance. It is incorruptible, it is undefiled, it fades not away. He said it is reserved in heaven for you. The basis of that hope, it's rooted in the resurrected Christ. And that's Paul's point here. And Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, is emphasizing the resurrection. He talks about preaching the resurrection or the proclamation of the resurrection. There is proof for the resurrection. Look, sometimes people talk about blind faith. We have evidence, don't we? Evidence rooted in, as I said a minute ago, the eyewitness testimony, the empty tomb. 2,000 years have passed, but we still believe the truths related to the resurrection of Christ. Now there's a third thing I want you to see in our study. And for the sake of time, we're going to drop down and look at verse 50. And I want to talk now about the promise of the resurrection. We have the promise 
of being raised from the dead because, as I said a minute ago, Jesus was raised from the dead, wasn't He? Now go back and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to see a verse very quickly. Look, if you would, at verse 20. Paul said, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. When Paul says here that Christ is the firstfruits of the resurrection, all he is saying is that based upon the resurrection of Jesus, there is the promise of a greater harvest to follow. That's pointing to the future, that day when Jesus comes. So what about the promise of the resurrection? Well, in looking at verse 50 and following, first there is the realization, the recognition of the resurrection. Paul here in verse 50 is going to talk about the time of the resurrection and then the transformation that will occur at the resurrection. So listen to him in verse 50. This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Paul said, we shall not all sleep. He's talking here about those who have died in Christ, isn't he? You remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul t- Paul talked about those who had died in Christ. They were asleep in Christ. He said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. The word moment here is the term from which we get our word Adam. So when Paul says, we shall not all sleep, we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. What he's saying is, in a split second. It'll happen just that fast. So, the time of the resurrection. I mentioned a minute ago, 1 Corinthians chapter, or rather, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul talked about those who had died in Christ, and Paul was writing to alleviate their fears. That they, as he would say, sorrow not as others who have no hope. And you remember in that context, he talked about the second coming of Jesus. He said that the Lord would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Not long ago, I was out of town, and I had the opportunity to be outside early one morning. And as I was walking, I was looking up into the sky, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. You talk about a beautiful summer morning. It was picture perfect. For whatever reason, I got to thinking about a friend of mine that had died a couple of years ago. And as I started reflecting upon him, and as I looked upward to the sky, I thought about, you know, there's coming a day when Paul said, the Lord's going to... He's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And I thought about, can you imagine 
the skies will be filled with saints coming again. Can you imagine that? It may be that we'll be among that number. We'll come with Jesus unless He comes before we die. Paul here is talking about the second coming and the resurrection. And so listen now to the continuation. He said, The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now I mentioned first the time of the resurrection, but then the transformation. Paul just said, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. The body that we have on the other side will not be the same as the body we have here. The body that we possess today is a mortal body. It is a corruptible body. It is a body subjected to time, a body that feels pain, a body that is not immune to disease and illness and disease, and yes, death. But Paul said, on that occasion, death is swallowed up in victory. But just think for a minute about the transformation of that body. The transformation of the body that Paul has pictured here. You remember in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said that our citizenship is in heaven. He said, Whence also we wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our lowly body. Some translations say our vile body. Other translations say he will fashion anew. He'll change it. He'll transform it. He'll fashion anew the body that we possess. It'll be a glorified body, won't it? It will be, as Paul said, an incorruptible body, an immortal body. It'll be a body unlike that which we have today. And then note the continuation. Paul asked, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Every time we go to the cemetery, we're reminded of our frailty here on planet Earth, aren't we? Many of us have made a number of trips to the cemetery over the course of this year. For many, it is an hour of extreme sorrow, tremendous loss, a void. And so many times, we think about that pessimistically. But when we go to the cemetery as a child of God, and as we place the body of our loved one in the soil, we do so in hope, don't we? In hope of the resurrection. I don't know how many times I've read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Psalm 23, at the side of an open grave. And why do I do that? Because I want people to know this is not the end. 
Death is not the final chapter, is it? No, Paul said death is swallowed up in victory. And so, one day the Lord will come. As Jesus said, marvel not the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life, those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In Revelation chapter 1, you remember in verse 18, Jesus identified Himself as the living Savior, didn't He? He said, I am He who was, a, who was dead, but am alive. He said, I am alive forevermore. And He said, I have the keys to Hades and death. Jesus has the keys to the cemetery, doesn't He? Now there's a second thing I want you to see very quickly before our time's gone. And that is our readiness for the resurrection. We need to live we need to live in anticipation of the end, don't we? The end of life here, the end of time here. So in light of that, listen to what Paul says down in verse 58. Therefore, that is in light of everything that I've just said. Here's what I want you to do. Number 1, I want to encourage you to be faithful to God. Listen to him. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. Let me just pause there. You know, in this life, it can be tough staying grounded. It can be extremely difficult sometimes to live a steadfast, immovable life. And what Paul is saying here is, We've got to demonstrate some grit and grind. We've got to be tough. And we've got to dig in and say, you know what? I'm not going to yield any more ground. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay true to God. I'm going to be faithful to Him. Paul is encouraging faithfulness to God and also fruitfulness for God. Listen to him. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why, Paul? That your labor, knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Everything that you do for the cause of Christ, I would hope that you do it because of gratitude, out of love. You do it because of who you are and whose you are we have the opportunity to be fruit bearers for God and to understand that God will ultimately reward us on that final day, won't He? Didn't Jesus say, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and then so shall you be my disciples. To be faithful and to be fruitful in our lives. We want to go to heaven. And not only do we want to go to heaven, but we want to take somebody with us, don't we? You know, if you're a parent and you can teach and mentor your children and lead them in such a way so that one day they're in heaven with you, let me tell you what, you have been a great success. I promise you. You get your children, you get them where they need to be one day, Job well done. 
It's a grandparent, same thing. If you can so live so that your grandchildren want to follow in your steps, the steps of faith, and one day you can be in heaven and they can be there with you, job well done. Our goal is heaven. We have hope. Not pie in the sky, hope so, think so, maybe so, but hope, real, genuine hope, grounded in Christ. If you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. I encourage you to come to Christ, to do what they did 2,000 years ago, to put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God, to repent of all your sins, to confess His name, and then to be baptized into Christ so that you can have all of your sins washed away, as Paul talks about in Acts 22, 16. And then as a member of the church, be faithful to God. Be fruitful for God. Be steadfast, immovable. And ultimately one day, you will realize eternal life. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to His cause, I encourage you tonight, let us, let us pray with you and for you. God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.